When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later today, we'll be talking with Dave Zirin, The Nation's sports editor, about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Dave interviewed him last week. We'll listen to Kareem talking about sports and politics. Also today, the movie The Big Short. It may be the best film ever made about economics. It's funny. It's also devastating in explaining the financial crisis of 2008. And it's been nominated for several Oscars. We'll have comment from Kenneth Turan. He's film critic for the LA Times. The Nation magazine has endorsed Bernie Sanders for president. For comment, we turn to Katrina Vandenhuvel. She's editor and publisher of The Nation. She's also a frequent commentator on politics for ABC, MSNBC, CNN, and PBS. And she recently appeared on Real Time with Bill Maher. Her articles have appeared in The Washington Post, The L.A. Times, The New York Times, many other places. She writes a weekly web column for The Washington Post. And she's the author of many books, most recently, The Change I Believe In, Fighting for Progress in the Age of Obama. And she also launched this podcast. So it's a pleasure to say, Katrina Vandenhuvel, welcome to Start Making Sense. Thank you, John. Well, I know the nation has always refused to be a nonprofit, even though that would make fundraising a lot easier. And that's because the nation wants to be free to endorse candidates. Does the nation endorse a candidate every presidential year? John, um, we endorsed almost every year. Uh, I was struck by Politico, which uh, on the day we posted the Bernie Sanders endorsement, wrote that we ha- this was the third endorsement in our history. Well, we endorsed Ulysses Grant <laughs> uh, in, the, in the general. We endorsed Norman Thomas in 1932, and then Franklin Delano Roosevelt in three consecutive following uh, elections. But this is the third time that the nation has endorsed in a primary. We endorsed Jesse Jackson in a magisterial endorsement called Jesse Jackson and the Movement in 1988. We endorsed Barack Obama in 2008. And just last week, we endorsed Bernie Sanders. So it is a statement of uh, commitment to issues we believe in, above all. And Bernie Sanders, someone we've been covering at the nation for close on to 30 years, I believe, 
lifts up, amplifies the issues that have animated the nation over these last decades. Well, let's talk about those issues. What are the, the key issues that led the nation to endorse Bernie? You know, the key issue, John, is inequality. There are many kinds of inequality, but Bernie Sanders is an unbought and passionate fighter against a rigged system and metastasizing inequality, economic and political. And I think above all, it was his commitment to exposing a rigged system. Unbought. What do I mean by unbought? It is unprecedented that someone has raised the millions, I believe it's $77 million from small donors, average donation, $27 or $33, and is competitive with one of the great fundraising machines of our time, the Clinton fundraising machine. What that means is that he is liberated to advance a bolder agenda because change isn't going to come until we take it back from the corrupt grip of big pharma, of big banks, of billionaires. One of my favorite lines in the nation editorial endorsing Bernie is the one that says, quote, in the United States, it seems that nothing is shared these days, not prosperity, nor security, nor even responsibility. Well, you look out, John, look at the situation in Flint, Michigan. Think about the end of accountability in our system. Think about what is shared and what isn't shared. What is shared is disaster, shock, doctrine, capitalism, as our columnist Naomi Klein would say. What isn't shared is with Bernie Sanders and, you know, others. He's not alone. I would say that there's something called the Warren Wing, the Elizabeth Warren Wing of the party, which speaks to a kind of solidarity, not to division and to sharing in the possibilities of this country, in its fruits. And, um, you know, I do think the debate, which many of your listeners probably saw this past Sunday, what struck me is that unlike the Republican horror shows, uh, we didn't see a race to be the more extremist, intolerant person. We saw a race to the top on economic populist issues. Uh, Debt-free college, which is one of Bernie Sanders' signature issues, uh, Wall Street accountability, and expanding Social Security benefits. And I think Bernie Sanders has been bolder in advancing all of those. Certainly Medicare for all is a key key idea. Healthcare for all as a human right uh, is something Bernie Sanders has long championed. And I think he's freer to do it because he is liberated from the demands of big donors, big pharma. Well, let's talk about Medicare for all for a minute. The Hillary defenders, including Paul Krugman of the New York Times, argue that if you were starting from scratch, it would definitely be better to have a Medicare for all system. But they argue politically it's not possible to change now from Obamacare's reliance on lots of private insurance to a Medicare for all system. They say it would cost too much. They say the insurance industry would try to stop it. And they say many people uh, want to keep their present private employer-sponsored insurance. And therefore, the best we can do is try to add a public option to the existing Obamacare system. And therefore, uh, Bernie's uh, advocacy of Medicare for all is, is untenable and perhaps even politically dangerous. What do you think about these objections to Bernie's Medicare for all proposal? What I think we're witnessing, John, and it becomes part of the healthcare, Medicare for all, Obamacare debate, is the, the division between what is realistic and what is idealistic. And I would submit that what is realistic at this moment 
is to understand that in a rigged system, until you confront that system, you cannot have the change this country needs. That is realism. I would submit that Hillary Clinton is saying her experience makes her the more electable candidate. But, John, experience can lead to wrong lessons or poor judgments. I believe we see that in Hillary Clinton, who apologized for her vote authorizing the Iraq war, yet she doesn't seem to have learned the lessons in Libya or Syria. But you know what? Why not argue that you build on Obamacare and build big, go big, Medicare for all. I think that progressives made a mistake uh, a few years ago when we capitulated quickly on the public option. We should have fought much harder on that. And in capitulating, we allowed a weak compromise. I fully respect the difficulties of moving things through our system. It's dysfunctional. It's the roadblocks. But I think Bernie Sanders is touching on one of the most popular issues in this country. And by the way, his issues, which are often deemed a little too idealistic for our times by a media that likes to police the parameters of what is viable and possible, his issues have majority support. The fight for 15 minimum wage, Medicare for all, debt-free higher education, expanding not preserving or cutting Social Security benefits. So I think it, what's emblematic about the health care discussion is emblematic about the larger framing of how you, as a progressive in this country, move forward. Do you think big or do you think small at first or compromise first but before leading? What about Hillary? Wouldn't it be a great thing to elect a woman president of the United States? On Hillary Clinton, first of all, I hope people will read the endorsement of Bernie Sanders because we do point out that Hillary Clinton is a candidate of, you know, of experience, of grit, of intelligence, who has responded to this populist moment. And we point out that, yes, it would be a great thing to break the thickest glass ceiling. This is a big tent at the nation. There are valuable members of this community who do support Hillary Clinton. I'm thinking of Katha Pollitt, first and foremost, and the issue preceding the endorsement issue, you had two socialist feminists, one for Hillary, one opposed to Hillary Clinton. But even while one would want a woman president, I think you want someone who will recognize that women demand a 15 minimum wage. Yes, reproductive justice and security. But I believe inequality is the existential crisis of our time, and I see in Bernie Sanders a commitment to ensuring that that issue is lifted up for men, women, and children in this country. Hillary's defenders say Bernie can't win the presidency. He's a 74-year-old from Vermont who's a socialist. The Republicans would love to run against him. Hillary's defenders say you should vote for Hillary because we don't want a Republican in the White House. What do you think of that argument? You know, in our endorsement, we do point out don't forget the Supreme Court. The next president will have three justices most likely to appoint. At the same time, I think it's, um, again, policing the parameters of what's possible to argue that he is not electable. First of all, I was st- struck that in the Des Moines Register last week, a remarkable 43 percent of likely Democratic caucus participants described themselves as socialists. Now, I'm not sure what to make of that, but I do know that millions of people in this country are meeting Bernie Sanders and his issues for the first time. And many, by the way, many of the young people, and he's leading two to one in that young, among that younger generation, are looking beyond labels. They may not know what socialism means, but they certainly know what capitalism means. They've lived with it since the great financial recession, and it's pretty grim. In national polls, Bernie Sanders is matching up pretty well versus Trump or Cruz. Um, 
never say never. This is who would have imagined we'd be here at this moment just a year ago. Bernie Sanders, as he said in the debate, is now 50 points ahead from where he was when he entered. I think this country is at a moment, John. It's a watershed moment where people are open to new ideas, are open to change. And what struck me in the debate the other night is how Secretary of State Clinton wrapped herself so tightly in the Obama legacy. And this is a moment when people are seeking change. I'm not sure they're seeking continuity. She had her reasons for doing that. uh, But I think it's a volatile, fascinating moment. One of the most important things about the Bernie Sanders campaign to me is that Bernie says quite openly that he can't do it all himself. He says we need what he calls a revolution. He wants not only to run a presidential campaign, but to help revive the left as an organized, mobilized activist force in American politics. That is a great thing to be fighting for. And of course, the nation is is part of that fight. As we say at the end of the endorsement, John, what is exciting about the Bernie Sanders candidacy is not just his candidacy, but how his run has created the space for a more powerful progressive movement and shown that a different kind of politics is possible. Katrina Vanden Heuvel, she's editor and publisher of The Nation, which has endorsed Bernie Sanders for president. Thank you, Katrina. Thank you, John. Now it's time to talk about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar with Dave Zirin. Kareem is the all-time scoring champion of the National Basketball Association. Now he's 68 years old. Recently, he's become a political commentator and op-ed writer. Last week, uh, Dave Zirin, the nation's sports editor, talked with Kareem about sports and politics for his podcast and for the magazine. Dave Zirin is also the author of several books, most recently, Brazil's Dance with the Devil, The World Cup, the Olympics, and the struggle for democracy. Dave, welcome back. After your interview, uh, Kareem tweeted that it had been, quote, one of the most amazing conversations I have ever had on camera, close quote. What was it like for you to talk to Kareem? Well, honestly, in some respects, I don't know if his journalists were supposed to say this, but it was kind of a dream come true. Um, I first read Kareem's autobiography, Giant Steps, about 30 years ago, almost, uh, no, 30 years ago. Jeez, I'm old. And, um, and I got to tell you, like, I've had questions that I've wanted to ask him for 30 years. I mean, these are some really questions that were formative for me in determining my own political outlook and just cultural outlook on the world. And I think Kareem liked the interview for reasons that, frankly, are not in any way a compliment to me, but are about him in that we didn't really talk about basketball and he doesn't feel any great need to talk about basketball. His mind is on bigger issues. I mean, before the interview, he's in another room watching CNN, just taking notes Mm. on what the commentators are saying. I mean, he takes this idea of being a political commentator very seriously and I think a lot of people who've read his writings are taken by just how polemical and how literary they are. It's not just Kareem giving an opinion. It's something that you would read even if you had no idea who the writer was. You're right that Kareem is a very uh, passionate and effective uh, political writer these days. But this is something fairly new for him. 
isn't it? Tell yeah. us about his, his political uh, trajectory. And he was an activist in his college days at UCLA, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, it's actually really fascinating because I don't know of another political trajectory that's like this. And I think in a lot of ways you need sports to even have a political trajectory like this where someone stays in the public eye without being political. But so his trajectory starts as a teenager, uh, very influenced by Malcolm X, very influenced by aspects of the civil rights movement as well under Dr. King's leadership, and very invested in the black freedom struggle. And then he converts to Islam, which, as he says, did not make a lot of uh, ripples at the time. Like, nobody, like at the time, it's like it was more just a curiosity, like, oh, you're, you're a Muslim. You know, it was a big deal when Muhammad Ali joined the Nation of Islam because that was seen as a domestic, not just political group, but political threat. But Kareem becoming um, a variant of a Sunni Muslim was something that was just seen as almost like a curio. And he, he developed this deep mistrust, though, of the media in the 1970s, playing in Milwaukee. So he didn't talk about politics in the 70s and 80s and 90s and aughts, even though people knew he had this experience and this history. And so at age 68, he's reemerged after a long period where he was writing books about the Harlem Renaissance. He wrote a terrific book called Black Profiles and Courage. He made some documentaries, but he wasn't really commenting on, he even just wrote a book of Sherlock Holmes fan fiction, but he only became a political commentator in the last couple of years. When uh, Donald Trump called for uh, banning uh, all Muslims from entering the United States, Kareem responded uh, with an essay in Time magazine. How did that go? Wow. I mean, it was, this is just such a great story because, I mean, Kareem wrote this essay where he compared and contrasted Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. And Trump's response was to scrawl something on the column in you know, in like big magic marker, it's weird, like a big Sharpie and mail it to Kareem's office. And it, all it said was like, you're a loser. And even without you, we're going to make America great again is basically <laughs> what it said. Wow. And Kareem, I talked to Kareem about it and he said, you know, he had no problem with what Trump did because it proved his point that Trump is a bully who's incapable of listening. So he felt like it was kind of like a game set match that Trump even sent that. Well, we want to listen to a couple of uh, clips from your interview with Kareem. You asked him about Ferguson. Let's listen, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar on Ferguson. They just basically saw the black community as something that they could exploit uh, mm -hmm. any way they felt like it and imprison them, kill them. Mm -hmm. The whole judicial process was totally distorted so that black people got convicted and sent mm -hmm. to jail and fined on a regular basis. It, it was very close to uh, Jim Crow discrimination. I think it was. It, it was the equal of it. These people were balancing their budget on the backs of uh, yeah. poor people who were trying to go back and forth to work or take their kids to school. It was really a very ugly thing that had been going on for decades. So uh, by pointing that out, uh, you also saw that uh, the people there who were being exploited that way they need to wake up and do something about it. And I can't register them to vote. I can't give them the knowledge that they need to elect the people that need to be elected that will put an end to this. 
Dave, you asked Kareem about the relationship of the civil rights movement of the 60s to the Black Lives Matter movement today. Let's listen to Kareem's answer there. You know, when I was younger, uh, you know, 16 and 17, I wanted to fight back. And sometimes the best way to fight back is nonviolence. And, you know, I, I didn't understand that until much later in my life, but I accepted it. Just recently, when they had the 50th uh, anniversary of the crossing of the Edmund Pettus Bridge and hearing uh, uh, John Lewis's statements about what he went through um, the morning preparing to go and walk across that bridge, wow, you know, it Mm. makes me choke up now. And to have that kind of courage and dedication in in such a young man, um, he's a real hero. We were beaten, tear gas. Some of us was left bloody right here on this bridge. 17 of us were hospitalized that day. But we never became bitter or hostile. We kept believing that the truth we stood for would have the follows sad. Do you speak with John Lewis? Have you spoken with him? Uh, I have spoken with him. I, I've met him uh, since in, in the past couple of years. I've met him and uh, thanked him mm-hmm. for for what he did. You see the scar on his head. See the scar on his head, and uh, just just hearing his words about uh, he had his Bible in one pocket and a sandwich mm-hmm. in the other pocket, and uh, just hoped that he would make it. Uh, Dave, were you surprised that Kareem got choked up talking about John Lewis in Selma on the Edmund Pettus Bridge? Of course I did. You could have knocked me over with a feather. I mean, one thing about Kareem and people, if you listen to the interview, you'll hear this, is that he, he's, he's a stoic person. He's soft-spoken, and he's got a deep and very eclectic intelligence, but it's, it's something that comes out in a very measured fashion, and he's been like that his whole life. There were a lot of surprises, uh, at least for me, in your interview with Kareem. One of them was... Uh... You asked him about Gil Scott Heron. How did that come up? It came up because um, I'm a huge Gil Scott Heron fan, and I was surprised at the number of mentions of Kareem uh, in Gil Scott Heron's uh, memoir. Yeah, it is amazing. Let's listen to Kareem talking about Gil Scott Heron. Gil Scott, I, I, I see Gil as really the father of the uh, hip-hop, the spoken word with musical backbeat. And uh, Gil was just a a champion for black culture. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. His wife and I went to UCLA together. I knew her really well. And when they got married, I, you know, did I was you introduce a, them? Or did I you... didn't introduce them. I was best man at their wedding. Oh, wow. And, I, you know, I, when I go to D.C., I, I would stay with them sometimes. You know, we, we were friends. Gil had worked in my housing project when I was, like, a kid. He worked at the Dykeman Houses, one of the custodial people. Because he lived right across the river, uh, right at the end of where Fordham Road ends. Right. So he, he could walk over the bridge and... So he used to see me playing when I was still in grade school. And uh, he mentioned that to me. And I'm like, how'd you know about that? And then he, he yeah. told me the, the whole history. So, you know, he, he was aware of me before I was aware of him. But uh, just his uh, ability to uh, link the poetry with the music 
and what was really happening in the black community was extraordinary. Pieces of silver and pieces of gold tell me who paid reparations on my soul. You know, every time he performed here in um, in Los Angeles, I, I would attend. Sometimes they'd let me play congas. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. Wait a minute. You played congas when Gil Scott would play live music? Yeah, here at the at the Roxy. Wow. He performed at the Roxy. I, I think once or twice I, I played congas. It was real easy. It's not, it wasn't difficult. Yeah. We found the same kind of uh, friendship and camaraderie based around what we did, you know, mm-hmm. being on the road all the time. There was one set of lyrics he wrote. He didn't know if it was sometime early this morning or sometime late last night. I said, that's, yeah, that's on the road when those, those things happen to you on yeah. the road. I know I'm sounding crazy, but I swear that I'm all right. Does it happen sometime early this morning? And was that sometime late last night? I'm going home. And we, we just, uh, there was so much in common uh, that, that we had. And then, um, you know, at the end of his life, it was so sad. I, I, it was hard for me to, to deal with him because, uh, you know, I, I knew that he wasn't taking care of himself. Right. And um, his daughter, she was upset about it. Brenda was upset about it, his, his wife. Uh, but he, he just, uh, you know, the drugs got to him in a way that uh, really threw him off, off his track. His contribution so underrated to yeah. this day. Yeah, and you know, all, all people want to talk about is, you know, the negative aspects of it. But uh, no. he, he was a brilliant uh, artist, and uh, <sighs> he, he meant a lot. Dave, your closing thoughts. What What is the place of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in, in the politics of sports today? That is a great question. Um I think Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is right now our most interventionist political athlete because of the force of his place in sports history, as well as the power and literacy of his political comments. And he's becoming somebody indispensable, indispensable to the present day uh, matrix and intersection of sports, politics and culture. Well, we've listened here to only a couple of minutes of a conversation that lasted almost an hour. If people want to hear your full interview with Kareem, uh, Dave Siren, where where can they find it? Uh, you can go to um, edgeofsportspodcast.com. It's right there, edgeofsportspodcast.com. And we're going to have an edited video of the interview up at thenation.com very soon. Dave Zirin, thanks for talking to Kareem, and thanks for talking to us. Thank you so much. Now it's time to talk about the film The Big Short. It's probably the best film Hollywood has ever made about economics. It's the story of the housing bubble and the financial collapse of 2008. It's loads of fun, extremely funny. It's been nominated for several Oscars, and Bernie Sanders has talked about it. For comment, we turn to Kenneth Turan. He's film critic of the L.A. Times. His most recent book, Not To Be Missed, 54 Favorites from a Lifetime of Film, is out now in paperback. 
Kenneth Turan, the director of The Big Short, is a man named Adam McKay. Has he been known before for his mastery of Marxist economic theory? Well, not exactly, John. Uh, you know, his, uh, his claim to fame is that he collaborates a lot with Will Ferrell. Uh, they did, uh, the Anchorman films are his, Talligated Nights. He did work on Saturday Night Live. And, you know, he, he clearly has an interest in more serious things than the Anchorman films allowed him to do. If you or I set out to explain to our listeners right now how collateralized debt obligations work, <laughs> what do you think would happen? We would get lost. We would be stumbling all over ourselves within 30 seconds. So, so how does the big short succeed at doing something that we would probably not succeed at? Well, it's very clever. You know, that's a word we have kind of gotten out of the habit of associating with Hollywood comedies, but actually this is a Hollywood comedy that's smart. They use, uh, one of the things they do, they have a series of celebrity explainers that talk directly to the audience and explain things. And for uh, collateralized debt obligations, they turn to Anthony Bourdain, the celebrity chef, and he talks about how he takes old fish and puts it into new fish stew. And it's a wonderful explanation. And, and who are the other celebrity explainers? Oh, gosh. Selena Gomez uh, is paired with uh, a world-class economist named Dr. Richard Thaler. And uh, there's an actress named Margot Robbie, who we see in a bubble bath. Uh, these are not the kind of people you expect to be talking economics, and that's part of the fun. So this is uh, this is what the film theory people call direct address. The the <laughs> actors speak directly into the camera to explain things to the audience, and actually some of the the actors in the film who play characters also engage in this kind of direct address. Yes, Ryan Gosling plays the film's narrator, and he's one of the pr people who you know one of the key players in the film. But from time to time, he just talks to the audience and. Tells them what's going on. Usually, Hollywood makes serious films about serious uh, problems. The recent film about sexual abuse in the Catholic Church is an example uh, of that. I understand from your review this really wasn't always the way Hollywood dealt with serious problems. No, they used to make uh, Hollywood, you know, and back in the day, made you know comedies about serious stuff. I mean, people probably remember Ninochka, the Greta Garbo film, which is a uh, a comedy about communism. There's uh, The Great McGinty was a comedy about politics. Sullivan's Travels dealt with prison and poverty. I mean, these are funny films that really have a serious uh, undercurrent, but uh, for some reason, this kind of stopped happening. The easy way to make uh, The Big Short a film about the financial crisis and the people who beat it by selling the housing market short would be as a heist picture, uh, a bunch of wild and crazy guys rob, you know, the biggest casino in Las Vegas. Actually, Brad Pitt made that movie, didn't he? He did, yes. <laughs> the, the, uh, Ocean's Eleven. Ocean's Eleven, yeah. And in this case, a bunch of wild and crazy guys rob the whole American economy. But Adam McKay makes sure that that's not all there is to the big short. Yeah, it's a, there's a, some interesting moments there. Again, you know, they faced a problem that basically for these guys... You're basically rooting for the American economy to fail if you're yeah. rooting for these guys, because yeah. the only way they can make money is if the housing market collapses and everybody loses their jobs. And this is a bad thing to be rooting for. No one wants to be rooting for that. It's basically we're rooting against ourselves. So there is a moment when Brad Pitt actually stops the movie and makes a speech and says, you know, just, you know, don't celebrate so much. You know, he says a lot of pain is going into this. A lot of bad things are happening. Yes, you made a lot of money, but don't forget why you're making money. 
And, you know, the film, you know, the film could have, you know, didn't have to have that moment, but he thought it was important, and Adam McKay thought it was important, and it is important. It really does remind us of the damage that all this did, that it's not just fun and games and making a lot of money, that real people were really in pain because of this. The characters are a bunch of wild and crazy guys, actually much much wilder and more interesting than the Ocean's uh, Eleven crazy guys. Remind us who, who who's who in this movie and, and what their roles are. Actually, you know, this film and this project is in some ways so controversial that almost all the key players elected to have their names changed. Only one of the kind of the key six people is in the film under his real name. And that's uh, the guy, Michael Burry, he's played by Christian Bale. And he's one of the first guys to have seen that this whole thing wasn't going to work. He's a very eccentric guy. He's a doctor who doesn't practice, who has kind of a nose for uh, things that are going wrong. He likes to sit in his office by himself and play heavy metal drums. Uh, I went to a Q&A with uh, Christian Bale, and he said that the real Michael Burry, not only did he approve using his name, he sent Christian Bale his own clothes to wear in the movie. <laughs> oh, man. So when you see Christian Bale, he's wearing the real guy's real clothes. That's pretty wild. How, does that happen in a lot of movies? Not a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it may not be a first, but and, it's it, certainly not uh, the usual manner. And these clothes are uh, basically uh, flip-flops and shorts. Kind yes, flip-flops, shorts, and T-shirts. But they're not just any T-shirts. They're this guy's T-shirts. <laughs> the real T-shirts. The real T-shirts. And then there's the, the, the Steve Carell character, the, the angry man. Yes, he's very angry. It's a wonderful characterization. There's a great flashback moment in the film where you see him as a yeshiva boy and his mother talking to the rabbi, and <laughs> we find out that he is such a good student because he's spending his time searching for inconsistencies in the Word of God. <laughs> and is this a foreshadowing of how yes. carefully he's going to be reading the financial reports? Absolutely, and it's also a foreshadowing of his lack of faith in the establishment and in their received wisdom. And again, he finds out about this through Ryan Gosling's character, who, uh, you know, this idea that the housing market could be shorted started to percolate around, but most people thought it was just crazy. And it turned out it wasn't. And and just to finish the list of the wild and crazy guys, there's the young indie upstarts who have what's called a garage band fund. Yes, yeah, so that means they only have tens of millions of dollars. You're <laughs> <laughs> supposed to feel sorry for them because they can't play in the big league. They don't have a billion. To me, the, the, some of the most powerful scenes were the ones shot in these new Florida subdivisions where all the houses have been abandoned to foreclosure. I know this is true. It's, it's in the book, The Big Short. I think they probably really went to Florida to shoot these scenes. They probably did. You know, and you're just saying that reminds me of another film that has that as a theme, uh, 99 Homes, uh, yeah. starring Michael Shannon, which also deals with this. I mean, it's interesting that Hollywood, and not, that's, not, that's not a Hollywood film, 99 Homes is an independent film, but that movies are being made about these issues is, is quite fascinating. And this movie is, we've said, it's loads of fun. It's a funny movie about the economic crisis, but, but they make it clear that there's, there's no happy ending. And they also make it clear at the end of this film that nobody went to jail for the massive crimes, the fraud, the lying uh, behind the housing crisis. But they even made that point with a clever twist. Remember how they did that? 
they they talk about how everyone went to jail and people paid the price, and then they say, no, that didn't really happen. No, it didn't really happen. The Intercept, Glenn Greenwald's uh, website, has a fascinating piece about this film. They love the film. They said, go see it. And then they said, the true story is even worse uh, because, of course, what was happening with the people who sold short the housing market was they were buying insurance policies uh, on the bad mortgage bonds. Uh, but then when it t- came time to collect from the insurance companies, notably AIG, the insurance companies didn't have enough capital to pay the money that they owed the people who bought these policies. And you may remember who eventually paid AIG the money that went into the pockets of the short sellers. It was the taxpayers. It was it Congress. Was us. It was it us. Was us. Uh, and that part, they that's I guess that would be for the sequel. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing how much they get in there, but I guess that was just too much to fit in. But, you know, as you say, this is a film, you know, for a comedy, this especially kind of remarkable. This is a film that wants you to be angry. This doesn't want you to think, oh, this is all fun and games. You know, this is a deadly serious film on some level that says, you know, people were messed up and screwed over and we should be mad about it. It's a true crime story. It's a wild comedy. It's a heist film. It's a movie with a message. It leaves you in a dis- in a state of despair and-, and rage. I hope The Big Short wins an Academy Award. I think it might also be nominated for the Nobel Prize for Economics. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> Kenneth Turan, his book is not to be missed, 54 Favorites from a Lifetime of Film. We've been talking about The Big Short. It's in theaters now. Kenny, thanks so much for talking with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure, John. Thank you. That's it for today. If you like our show and you're looking to spice up your podcast diet, check out the fresh and irreverent LARB Radio Hour from the Los Angeles Review of Books. Each week, the three co-hosts talk about culture, interview big-time famous authors like Salman Rushdie, or introduce you to names you haven't heard but need to know. The show is smart, unpretentious, and also a lot of fun. I'm a big fan. The LARB Radio Hour is posted every Thursday. Get it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Goran and Ernesto Oriano at Emerson College, Los Angeles. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, give us a rating at iTunes. Five stars is good. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Dark skin,